So I'm going to invite uh, David, David Houston, to come on up now. David's going to be sharing uh, from the Word this morning for us, and um, it's my privilege to invite him up. And uh, David is is um, this May he will be graduating from Asbury Theological Seminary from Kentucky. You've been in the Howdy states. All. Howdy, y'all! Yes, yes. As you notice, um, there's a now new required pastoral dress uniform here: uh, blue shirt, brown belt, blue pants, brown shoes. It's uh, mandatory, actually. So thank you for making sure to adhere to those rules. I appreciate it. Anytime. <laughs> oh, I got And we're on. Hi. You guys can all hear me. Okay, so uh, for those of you who don't know, know who I am, my name is David Houston and I grew up attending Chapel Ridge um, and I, I believe I was asked to do free, uh, the free Methodist ethos, free will and the sovereignty of God because I once did not hold to this view. I grew up uh, believing what, uh, um, everything I will be teaching about this morning, but then I came to reject it because I went through this rebellious phase. And for some, some of us, you know, when we get rebellious, we turn to drugs, others alcohol. I turned to Calvinism. <laughs> so very rebellious, very rebellious. And so I, um, you know, I had all these theological questions uh, er early on in life. And so what I did is I went to that great fount of all wisdom, Google. And uh, so I Googled all of my theological questions. And wouldn't you know, I popped out a Calvinist at the end. And I became uh, swept up in what Time Magazine called the Young, Restless, and Reformed Movement. There's a whole bunch of us young, predominantly white guys who were really arrogant and obnoxious. And uh, we became Calvinists around the same time. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, you're going to tell them what that is? What's that? You're going to tell them what that is? Oh, yeah, I should say something. Yeah, the reason why I'm wearing this bling over here <laughs> is so my grandpa can hear me. He's. Uh, yeah, he needs us to be able to hear. Okay. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah, it's, it's nice. It is nice. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so I got caught up in this thing called the Young, Restless, and Reformed Movement. Uh, that's uh, what they called it because, um, yeah, we're young. We became Calvinists, and we were certainly restless. There was a bunch of us that were kind of obnoxious, bit arrogant. I was a lot arrogant. And uh, we actually caused a lot of trouble. And I certainly caused trouble here at Chapel Ridge. Um, basically, anyone who didn't agree with my view of scripture, I, I just labeled a heretic. And they were going to hell. It was horrible. Pastor Ken was actually like the worst offender. Where is he there? Uh, there he is. There he is. That's the guy. He's going to hell. And uh, I, which is just insane. Because I mean, he's like the most godly man I know. So, um, so after spending five years at uh, Presbyterian Church where they were thankfully better Christians than I was. Um, I ended up coming back, kind of, I had to eat humble pie and apologize to Pastor Ken for the way that I'd uh, spoken about him. And uh, this is my first opportunity to actually address the congregation, because I know many of you weren't here, but some of you were. And I know I caused a lot of trouble here. And I just want to apologize for the way that uh, my actions, my arrogance uh, hurt this church. So, and. Uh, I know that when I first came back here, I was a little afraid that you guys would never really accept me. I would never truly be forgiven. And I can say that you guys have far surpassed any expectations of graciousness that you know, should be put on Christians. So I thank you all 
um, for your kindness, for your grace, for your forgiveness. And uh, it's especially nice to be able to actually get in the pulpit, which is something that I never expected to do. Um, so, so here we are. Um, so at the outset, I want to say something. Um, Calvinism comes in for a bit of a beating in this sermon. However, I want to make clear that I'm attacking Calvinism, which is ideas, not Calvinists, people, okay? If you're a Calvinist here and, uh, you know, you're starting to feel like I'm beating up on you, I'm not. I love you. I want you to believe the truth. I think I've got the truth. You disagree? That's okay. We're still brothers and sisters. I don't want to get anyone rounding up uh, Calvinists, beating them up or anything like that after the sermon. <laughs> it would be a bad idea. So with that, we'll get into it. Okay. Karl Barth, the famous Swiss theologian, who by that time had written 14 volumes on, on uh, systematic theology, a bit of a nerd, was once asked in an interview how he would summarize his theology. And we were all waiting for this incredibly sophisticated answer with lots of, you know, ten-syllable words and all that sort of thing. And his answer, though, was, surprised everyone. He said, this is what summarizes my theology. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> and whatever criticism we might have of, of uh, Karl Barth, he got the central message right. Because in 1 John 4, verse 8, we, we read this most profound statement, that God is love. But what is love? It's an important question. Uh, everyone wants to be considered loving. They don't want to be considered a bigot, hateful, or anything like that. So it would be important to kind of start with, what is it? Um, well, I, I like to follow the, uh, the Roman Catholic philosopher Eleanor Stump's analysis, and she says that love is made up of two interconnected, mutually governing desires. The first one is a desire for the good of the beloved, and the second is a desire for union with them. And so if you want to take the, the analogy of a parent and a child, um, if the parent says that they love their child, but they don't, uh, they don't care if they're fed or clothed or uh, have opportunities for education or anything like that, we would say, well, I'm sorry, you don't really love your kid. And by the same token, if someone were to, were to say, no, I do desire all those things, but they wanted to, somebody else to, pro to provide all of them for them. Suppose they, were, um, they hired a nanny or, uh, to, to care for them, uh, a tutor to educate them, but they didn't want to spend any time with their kid, We'd say, well, I don't know. I don't think you actually love them. And so these two desires are very important. And so if God is love, we have to ask ourselves a question as we're evaluating uh, theological systems. Does this system present a God of perfect love who desires the good of others and desires a relationship with them? So I want you to keep that question in the back of your mind as we talk about the difference between what's called Arminianism and Calvinism. And if you don't know what that is, that's okay. I'll explain as we go, okay? Now, the big debate between Arminians and Calvinists is over the sovereignty or lordship of God, okay? Arminians, like us, believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God created the world, that he sustains it in existence moment by moment, that he exercises providential care over it, that he works miracles in this world, that he performs healings, um, and that he will one day judge everyone for how they uh, respond to his gracious offer of salvation. So we believe in the sovereignty of God, the lordship of God. But Calvinists want to say that although they believe everything that I just said, they, they go a little bit further. 
They want to ascribe to God as much power as possible, okay? And how much is that? All the power. All of it. He has as much control as possible. And so that's complete control. Um, so they, they would say, in the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. You catch that? God determines everything that happens, okay? Uh, he's determined that Jesus will come again someday, but he's also determined that each of you would be here right now. He's determined what you're wearing. He's determined how you're sitting. He will no doubt have uh, determined that some of you will fall asleep by the end of the sermon. <laughs> Although he tends to do that more when Pastor Luke's up here. <laughs> That's none of my business. <laughs> There. <laughs> you might be thinking that the reason why God determines everything is because he's foreseen what's going to happen, foreseen what we freely do, and then determines accordingly. But that wouldn't be right because the Westminster Confession of Faith goes on to say that he has not decreed anything because he foresaw his future. The only reason why it's going to happen is because God's going to make it happen. It's his will that's behind everything. But the natural question at this point is, well, what about free will? Does it, aren't we just robots on this view? Aren't we, you know, just puppets? Aren't we reduced to that, that level of, I guess, non-personhood? And so the Calvinists, has, uh, you know, Calvinists have tried to answer, um, answer this objection. They said, no, of course there's room for free will. But they define it a little differently. They see that we're free so long as we do what we want to do. Okay? Now, God determines what we want to do, but we're still doing the actions that we want to do. Um, and so one way to get your head around this, they'll, they'll say, is to think of the relationship between an author and a work of fiction, okay? So take the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, for, for example. So in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the characters are all doing things freely. They're all going about their business. The White Witch is, uh, you know, cast a, a spell over Narnia where it's always winter but never Christmas, much like we're experiencing now. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, you've got the, the kids, they're going about their business of getting in the wardrobe and all that sort of thing. And they're all doing this freely, but we know that Lewis is the one who's kind of writing the whole script. He's the one writing the whole story down. He's given each one of them their, uh, their personalities, their ideas, their wants, their desires. Uh, he's, he's created the, the entire setting for them to, to live out and to act in. Um, he's created, he's put all the, the characters together in the same story. And so at one level we might say that everyone's free in the Chronicles of Narnia, but then at another we'd say that they're all determined by Lewis, who's kind of like God in this scenario, and the character's kind of like us. So everyone's free, they would say. And, you know, they say, well, this might be hard to get our heads around. They, they say that it doesn't really matter because in the end it's biblical and we are people of the book. God has given us a book. This is what he says is true. That's what matters. Well, I don't think this view of divine sovereignty is biblical. I mean, just think of all the times that God gets angry at us or frustrated. He, he gets disappointed in us. I mean, how many times have we read that the Israelites messed up and he was angry? It's all over the place. But does that, does that make any sense if God's the one kind of dictating everything that they do? It's like God makes them screw up, and then he says, why, why did you screw up like that? 
know, and then it blames them accordingly. It doesn't make much sense. And so I would argue that the burden of proof is on the Calvinists to say that, uh, to prove their point from scripture, because it seems to me that God is not irrational and it would be irrational to blame people for doing things that you made them do. So they have tried to shoulder this burden of proof. If there's one thing Calvinists like to do, it's argue for Calvinism. They're big fans, they've written tons of books. And uh, so I can, I can walk you through one of their, their favorite pl places to find evidence for their view. I gotta say, I was actually like living in fear that I was gonna spill water on myself. And I was, talk I was sharing this fear with, with Pastor Sean, and he kind of re gently reminded me that he actually did spill water on himself the first time up here, and, and everyone still likes him. So I'm like, okay, all right, good. Uh, glad we got that out of the way. Okay, so if you turn to Ephesians 1, uh, we find some of the, ev the, the evidence for Calvinism that uh, they would point for, their point to. And so the evidence that we're going to see comes from what I think is a misunderstanding of a few key terms in this passage, Ephesians chapter 1. Um, they're going to see three words, and these would be election, predestination, chosen, okay? So if we pick it up in verse 3, and uh, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And then in verse 11, if you skip down there, it says, in him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So what could be clear? It's, I mean, that's Calvinism, isn't it? Predestination, uh, chosenness, God's setting it up according to the purpose of his will. It's, it's all there. But I want to say that this comes, to, to think of these verses or these terms as Calvinist words is to misunderstand it. We tend to think of it as Calvinist words because Calvinists talk about them so much, and we don't really, as Arminians, tend to talk about them as much, which we should in order to balance it out. But uh, let me give you an Arminian way of reading this. So the doctrine of election is basically the doctrine that God chooses who he's going to save. Arminians and Calvinists agree on that point. But both Arminians, Arminians and Calvinists will disagree over the reasons God chooses these people and not these people, okay? Um, the, the Calvinist is going to say that God chooses individuals. He's going to say, um, I'm going to choose Luke, uh, but certainly not Rob, not a chance. So that's, uh, it's kind of this arbitrary choosing. And the reason why he chooses, again, not because he, uh, he saw that Rob was going to reject him or anything like that. It's just because, you know, he wanted to, okay? It's up to him. He's very godly when he does this. Um, the, the, uh, so the Calvinist wants to say it's individual and it's, not, it's unconditional. There's no condition that Rob had to meet, or sorry, that Luke had to meet in order to be saved. By contrast, Arminians are going to say, we're going to agree with the three C's of election, okay? So the first is that election is Christological. It's in Christ. I went to seminary, so I, use, I say Christological from time to time. <laughs> Forgive me. So in Christ, the election is in Christ. So Christ, uh, God chooses Christ for glory and um, anyone in him, okay? So it's a corporate thing. God, in the same way that God chose the Israelites as a nation, um, he chooses the church, those who are in Christ now. So 
back in the Old Testament, he chose the Israelites, and if you wanted to, you could become an Israelite. Okay? It was up to you to freely opt in. You could actually join them. And you could freely opt out. You could say, I reject this people. I no longer want to be around them. I can go and join the Egyptians if they'll have me. In the same way, um, in the New Testament, we can join the church, should we so desire, and we can leave it. It is up to us. So it's this corporate thing. It's not uh, choosing individuals. It's choosing a particular people group, okay? And it's those who are in Christ. And it's conditional. So it's Christological, it's corporate, and it's conditional. The reason that we are elected is because we are in Christ and because we have faith in him. That's how we become united to Christ. And so that's how we, be, we uh, get to go to glory. So one way to get your head around this is if you consider a, you know, a cruise ship, okay? And it is predestined to go somewhere glorious, Jamaica. So different from here. And so you've got, uh, you've got the captain and the crew, and they plan, they say, right, we're going to go to Jamaica. So now the boat is predestined to go to Jamaica. And if you get on the boat, then you too are predestined to go to Jamaica. All right? However, if you don't want to get on the boat, then you are not predestined to go to Jamaica. So in this analogy, Christ would be like that, that uh, cruise ship. And if we want to get on, or if we go into Christ, if we have faith in him, then we are united to him. And so we too are going to go where he's going, which is glory. So um, I, I don't think that there's anything about predestination or chosenness that is particularly Calvinist. Uh, but what about verse 11 where it says that he works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will? That seems to be like this pretty a pretty big scope, you know, for what God wills. He works out everything in conformity to his will. The Calvinist really wants to push that, like it's everything. Um, it's everything, it's, you know, it's whatever you guys are doing in your seats right now. It's also, you know, every sand, uh, grain of sand that's in the Sahara and what it's doing at this very moment. It's everything. It's all in conformity to his will. But I, I think this is kind of pressing the language uh, a little too hard. In fact, a lot too hard. Because we, we often say that some, like everything was worked out and we don't mean everything in the whole world. So we, we might say that Bev works, you know, she, she's behind everything. Um, <laughs> she is. You know, she's behind everything, right? And I mean, you know, it's tempting to actually, when I think of what Bev does for this church, to think that, you know, she's behind the movements of the solar system and all the rest of it, making sure we're all okay. But really, it's like we know what, what we're saying. It's actually she's behind everything at Chapel Ridge, you know? <laughs> so it's, uh, we can use this kind of colloquially. So we're not, we're not talking about the great scope of everything. And in Ephesians 1, what's going on is God is working out everything in regards to his plan of salvation in conformity to the purpose of his will. So it's a more limited scope. Okay, so at the end of this, my hope is that at the very least, you're, you're thinking that Calvinism isn't just obviously biblical. Because there's other reasons, there's reasons to, to, uh, to think that it's not true and reasons to not want Calvinism to be true. Um, because I would argue that if Calvinism is true, then God is not good. Right, let me give you a few reasons to think of, to, to believe that. So the first reason is that Calvinism makes God the author of sin. Calvinists really want to say that their view of providence is the only thing that can give us hope for this world and uh, confidence that we're going to be okay. 
because God's in control of everything. And don't you want God to be at the helm? Well, I do if God is good. I really do. But the problem is that, you know, if they want to point to all of the good things is coming from God. It's all by his, by his hand or from his hand that we get all these good things, all these blessings in this world. But the problem is that if God's behind everything that happens, it's not just the good things that we get to give credit to God for, but also the bad things, all the evil things. So if God's in control of everything, that, that includes all the, you know, the children being born and all the people getting saved and all the rest of that good stuff. But it also includes every murder, every rape, every act of child abuse. Um, it includes the, you know, those people dying on the bus in Saskatchewan. It includes the Holocaust. It's all of it. You can't just say God's responsible for everything, praise him for the good stuff, and then ignore all the bad. It's a package deal. So that's one reason to, to think that Calvinism makes God bad. Is he becomes the guy who ultimately planned for every sin to happen. He's the ultimate source of it. And you know, going back to that Narnia example, the author and uh, the the characters in the play. The problem is that in this world, this is not a work of fiction. We're real people, and we really suffer. And so when God writes the script in such a way that we, we suffer, and for many of us, we'll actually end up in hell, that's on him. He's, he's throwing real people in there. So it's not the same. It breaks down at the crucial point that it needs to hold up. And the second thing I want to talk about, which is actually I think the key problem with Calvinism is that what does this do to the character of God? I think it ruins him. He's not loving. God is not love on Calvinism. He doesn't want to save everyone. Ezekiel 33 verse 11, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, it says that God is not willing that any should perish, that all should repeat or should reach repentance. So God genuinely loves everyone, everyone. But now the question is, you know, if God loves everyone, then why isn't everyone saved? The Arminian has a ready response to this. We say, well, sadly, it is the case that not everyone will freely bow the knee to Christ. Not everyone will do that. And, you know, God has, has blessed us with free will. He's given us true personhood and agency. And some of us use that in bad ways. But no such option is available to the Calvinists. They're going to say, because uh, God could, on Calvinism, freely save everyone. There's no reason for anyone to be saved. Or, sorry, to be, uh, to be damned. There's no reason, because he could make everyone come to him most freely. So instead, they, they have to try and find ways to hold up their view that God actually could save everyone but doesn't, but that God still loves everyone. But not all of them want to do this. Um, so, for instance, there's some really consistent Calvinists, and I, I would have counted myself as one of them, who just plainly say, no, God doesn't love everyone. So um, the, the Reformed theologian, Arthur W. Pink, he, he says, when we say God is sovereign in the exercise of his love, we mean that he loves whom he chooses. God does not love everybody. Just comes right out and says it, <laughs> which is very consistent, and we're, we're, I'm very thankful for that consistency, scary as it is. Um, other Calvinists have understandably been a little uncomfortable with that kind of forthrightness, and so they've tried to find ways to, uh, to reconcile these two, these two truths. 
And so uh, the biblical scholar, uh, Calvinist biblical scholar, D.A. Carson, um, he tells this, this kind of sad story in his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And just as a side note, if you write a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God, you find it difficult, chances are there's something wrong with your theology, that this is so difficult. You've got to change something. But anyways, he, he writes about how he goes and he speaks at a lot of Calvinist uh, pastor's conferences. And he says that he often has young Calvinist pastors come to him um, in between the breaks and afterwards and saying, uh, okay, I have this pastoral problem. I keep on having these non-Christians coming over to me and asking me if God loves them. What, what do I tell them? Isn't that a sad problem? Isn't that sad? You have somebody who genuinely wants to know God loves them, who's looking for hope, and they, I mean, they, they don't know what to do. They don't, because they can't tell them, yes, God loves you, because they don't know. Maybe God hasn't chosen them. Maybe God's planning to send them to hell. And like, before they were even born, there was a plan in place to send them there. So what do they say? What does Carson say? So Carson says, of course you tell them that God loves them. Of course he does. Well, they say, well why? Well, how can you say that? And so he says, I'll give you a couple of ways in which uh, God loves the people who he's not planning on saving. The first is that he adopts a loving stance towards them. He adopts a loving stance. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. And that's true. If they were to come, he would give them rest. Now, the problem is that he's already determined them in such a way that they will not accept his offer. They're not going to do it. They're not going to come to him. And so he says, so I'm offering, he offers freedom to them, and that's loving. But I want to say, like, is that a, a really a well-meant offer? That seems like a farce to me. I think that's a joke, so I don't think much of his first reason. The second reason he offers is the doctrine of common grace. Um, and so this is the doctrine that God uh, provides temporal blessings for everyone, regardless of whether or not God is going to, be, to save them or not. So the, the classic proof text for this comes from Matthew 5, where it says that, um, where, where Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, who sends his rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. Okay? And so the idea here is that in an agrarian society, you depend very much on the rain in order to make sure that your garden grows, you get some crops, and you have food. Okay? And God is so gracious that he doesn't just send the rain to fall in the gardens of those who are, are really uh, good people, who are for him. Uh, he also sends it on his enemies, those who don't despise him, who, who don't want to have anything to do with him. And so, see, God loves everyone. The problem is that if Calvinism's true, then, I mean, that, that seems like, it doesn't seem good enough, does it? I mean, would you think that I love uh, that I love people. If uh, supposing, supposing I, were to, uh, I was a scientist and I decided to adopt a whole bunch of children and I were to, to raise them um, like my own children, like I, I really love them, I took care of them, um, I fed them, I clothed them, I provided for their education, I gave them a really good life, but then when they reached a certain age, um, I used these wonderful healthy subjects in order to perform painful experiments on them that would eventually lead to their death. If, would, you, would you think I loved those children? Probably not. Because it seems like all of those, he, I wasn't loving them, I was just using them. I wanted to perform the experiments that would then benefit me in some way, and I didn't care if, about their ultimate well-being. So similarly, 
There's no way that just because God has decided to bless the non-elect with certain temporal blessings like watering their garden, that it would justify sending them to hell. That doesn't seem like love. And doesn't Jesus address this? He says, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? So it's, it's, not, it's not right. Others, not Carson, um, have chosen a different tack. They've said, well, um, God does have this desire to save everyone, and he really does want to be united to them in love, but the problem is that there's something more important at stake. There's something more important at stake. And so what is that? The glory of God. The Calvinist pastor, John Piper, really likes to stress this one. But it's the glory of God. It's all about the glory of God. And so uh, he argues that um, if, there were, if God did not determine people to sin and then to go to hell, then we wouldn't be able to see God's wrath on display. We wouldn't be able to glorify him for his wrath. So we, he needs those sinners there so he can be glorified in his wrath. And it's always better for God to be glorified because it's about God, right? Now, a few things that can be said about this. For, number one, I just don't think that God's so concerned about his glory that he doesn't care about people. I don't think God's self-absorbed like that. I think that God loves others <laughs> more than he's going to just want to make sure that every last drop of his glory comes, comes in, all right? And the other thing is that I don't actually think wrath is an essential attribute of God. God could have just not created, and he would have been completely satisfied and uh, glorified in himself with, without wrath. Like, he, he would never have to have a, an opportunity to, to show his wrath because there would be no need for it. I think that really wrath is just God's justice when it encounters sin. That's all it is. And the third point um, I want to raise is that on traditional views of God, you don't have to, to follow this in any way, but traditionally, um, people wanted to say that God doesn't have um, negative emotions. He's always happy. He's always maximally happy. He could never be unhappy. Why? Because he's always satisfied in himself. And never mind how that jives with what the Bible says about him being angry right now, but just follow, follow with, me, with me on this. Um, a lot of Calvinists have wanted to say this especially. And so the, uh, they have to argue um, well, why is it that God wants his, his wrath glorified? Well, it's not going to benefit God because he's always maximally happy. And it's certainly not going to benefit those, those suckers in hell, the, the reprobate, those who don't end up getting saved. So who's left? The chosen people, okay? The ones he's chosen to save. And so then they have to come up with a reason for why it benefits those who are chosen to send some people to hell. And so this is the, a story that's been told by a number of theologians, Thomas Aquinas being a, a big one, big name in this, and a bunch of Calvinist philosophers. And they, they say that this is how it works. <laughs> um, take two people. You've got Rob the reprobate, the guy going to hell, and Ernie the elect, and they're neighbors. And then they both die. And Ernie is now in heaven, and Rob is now in hell. And... Ernie is just, you know, he's so thankful for being chosen. He's just like, oh, thank God. He's seeing God face to face. It's wonderful. But the problem is that Ernie's got this little finite mind, and so he can't appreciate all that he's got without being able to contrast it with something. And so what God does is when Ernie's in danger of having his happiness come down a little bit, he marches Ernie over here to see Rob the reprobate in the great abyss that is hell, and he, Ernie just looks down and goes, oh, Oh, that's horrible. All those people writhing around, that's, that's terrible. Thank God he's so loving, and I get to be over here experiencing the overwhelming love of God. This is wonderful. 
And they even go so far as to say, well, hey, if the ratio of people in hell to the people in heaven is higher, it's, it favors hell, then, hey, we're just going to think we're that much more lucky for not being in hell. Isn't that great? Isn't God loving the grace and majesty of God? This is fantastic. But I got to tell, tell you, I just think that's the ugliest picture of God I can imagine. It is just disgusting. Disgusting. It's ugly, and this is the really, really the worst part of it all. Calvinists know that their view of God is ugly. When they think about it, they know it. I know I did. I really knew that God was ugly. I tried not to think of it as ugly. I tried to kind of bracket out all of this stuff and just think about how good he was in saving me. But uh, it was really hard. And that's why every pastorally sensitive Calvinist doesn't talk to people about this. They just don't. I remember being in a counseling situation at, uh, at another church. And there was this, this couple that came in. And the, the wife was incredibly depressed, incredibly depressed. And the, the husband, as it turned out through a few conversations, was really all it's, he seemed to be interested in was getting the pastor and I to agree with him that she's, she's just beyond hope, she's crazy, and, so that he could leave her and feel good about it. And uh, so her husband didn't love her. And as I spoke with her, I realized that she had led a really horrible life. She had been abused. Um, her parents really didn't seem to love her. Nobody seemed to love this woman. She didn't have friends around. Like, no one loved her. She didn't have any good friendships or any moments that she could point to and say, that person loved me. She had none of that. And I remember her looking across the table at me, and she said, David, does God love me? And I hesitated. What was I going to tell her? I had all this theology in my head that said, no, maybe, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he does, but maybe he doesn't. And i got to be honest. But I couldn't in that moment. I couldn't tell her. But thankfully, my pastor, this Calvinist pastor, who's a very good friend of mine, who's a good man, he knew what to do. He told her immediately, yes, God loves you. God loves you. And that's this really sad thing. Because Calvinists love people more than they believe God does. And you know what? I want to be able to believe something that I can minister out of. I don't want to have to hide my theology, what I truly believe, in order to minister to people and give them hope. I want to be able to work out of my theology. And Arminianism, the view that the free Methodists hold to, where God does not control everything, that he allows some things to happen. He has good purposes for allowing it. And he gives us free will so that we can actually be involved in his world and, and be able to love him freely, and he can love us freely. That actually gives us hope. We can actually counsel people out of this. That God does love them. There is hope to be had. It also makes it so that evangelism makes sense. When you think about it, like if you're a Calvinist, what hope are you going to give somebody? What are you going to tell them? I mean, first there's a the question of why are you sharing the gospel with them? Because, you know, couldn't God just do it for him, for, for us? Like, I mean, he doesn't need us, really. Calvinists will say, well, it's just a, it's a gracious thing to do to allow us to be involved. How many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? None. If God wants it done, he'll do it himself, all right? So, so it's, it doesn't, we, we don't really need to be there. But then what is the good news, should you share it with them, what is the good news that you're going to give them? God really likes some of you. He, 
we're not really sure about you, which one, you know, if he loves you or not. But, uh, you know, he might. He might. That's cool, right? I mean, you know, you might also be predestined to go to hell, and that would suck. But, uh, but you, might, you might not be. That's cool. I mean, is this the message of hope that we're going to give people? What about for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life? And the other thing, the other problem that it causes pastorally is I, I know people that grew up in Calvinist homes. And I'm telling you, like, there's some really wonderful Calvinist Christians out there. So I don't want to, like, slam everyone if they're Calvinist. But I've met a lot of them that heard this stuff growing up. And they get to the point where they think, well, hold on, am I elect? Am I one of God's chosen? I certainly don't want to go to church. I, I kind of, I'm not sure if I really want to be there. But I'm sure if, if I really was one of these chosen people, God, God I would want to be at church. And so what they say is, well, I, okay, I guess I'm not one of the elect. Or maybe I am, I don't know. But in the meantime, I'm going to do whatever I want. And if God wants me, he's going to come get me. And so they leave and they don't come back. And that's a sad thing, because you know what? God did come to get them. He did. He sent Christ. He sent Christ. He's holding out his hand to you, and you can take it. I remember the first crack in my Calvinist armor came, though, when I was listening to a sermon on John 1. And the, the pastor was talking about, he, he asked us, um, what would, how would you feel if you knew that you're going to have to stand before God and give account for all that you've done right now? And there was like this shudder throughout the room, like, that, that doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound good. And he said, well, what if, what if you had to give account before Jesus? And it was like, we all just kind of breathed this sigh of relief. Like, that sounds better. Okay. Okay, I could do that. And he said, don't you know, Jesus reveals the Father. If you want to know what the Father's like, look at Jesus, okay? And that, that's when it finally clicked for me. I was like, wait a second, hold on. What was Jesus like? Jesus loved people. He loved everyone. He, he said, let the little children come to me. He didn't say just the elect ones. He, he, said, he said, you know, he went out and hung out with the, the dregs of society, everyone. The people that everyone rejected, he was for them. He wanted them. And what I began to realize was that if Calvinism is true, then Jesus just becomes a beautiful mask to cover up an ugly face. But if, if Arminianism is true, if our view is true, then Jesus actually reveals the heart of the Father. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That, that simple truth that I was taught growing up here at Chapel Ridge It served me well. I thought I was going to get through this whole thing. <laughs> At the most difficult times in my life, it's, I've clung to it. So if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me tell you something. Jesus loves you. This I know for the Bible. tells me so. That's it. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's, uh, let's just bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, 
we want to thank you for being who you are, that you are love, that you love us, every one of us, and that you have, uh, you desire to save us and you acted upon those desires. You acted decisively in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and took the form of a slave and became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross, so we might be saved. And Lord, you have highly exalted him and given him sovereignty, lordship over everyone and everything so that his name, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us all bow the knee to you because you would love that. It would please you for all of us to be saved. So I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has not bowed the knee, that they would submit to you a loving God who wants the best for them. We love you, Lord. Amen. Why don't you stand and sing with us? We're going to sing in Christ alone. And um, the call is is there. The first, uh, or John 14 very simply says, uh, Jesus saying of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, God sent his Son, made a way through Jesus Christ to come to him, that all might be who believe will be saved, that he, he loves everyone. And if you're here and you've ever struggled with whether you really know that God loves you, maybe you've had a very difficult life and you just wondered, does God really love me? The very fact that he would take his son, himself, part of the Trinity, and, and, and allow it to become human was one thing, but then to allow him to die is another, but then to give him life again and resurrect Jesus so that you also can have the hope of resurrection is, is a great great act of love. It says in the scriptures, there is no greater act of love than this, than someone who would lay down their life for a friend. And Jesus did it for absolutely every single one of you. No matter who you are, no matter what color you are, no matter what language you speak, he died for every single one so that those who may believe in him and call upon his name, they will be saved. It is in Christ alone that our hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song.
Heavenly Father, we go knowing that you are almighty and you are all powerful. That you died for us. You gave us hope. You gave us life. And we worship and praise you. Let our lives be a glory to you. Let us who have put our hope in Jesus Christ point others towards you through the peace that we have in our salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your week in Christ.